This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Oh, well, would you look who it is? Yeah, I want to hear what you call me. I want, I want to hear you finish that sentence. You, you don't think we live in a democracy anymore? Go ahead. Go oh, ahead. oh, oh, you'll see. Oh, you'll I'm, see. I'm, hit, I'm tapping my chin right now. Come oh, on. You'll right see. Here. Right here. Oh, you'll right see. Here. I think we should just go right now. I don't think we should even like waste time with our normal five minutes of talking before we start recording. That's like the best intro that we could possibly have for this episode. Well, well, Ben's starting with us. He's... Unbelievable. I'm sorry. All right. Well, I'm leaving this in. So you, you know have... that when we started recording this, dear listener, uh, this was the start to our, our phone call, but we're going to pause and we're going to talk to Ben and then we're going to bring it back for the real show. That's coming up next. All right. Welcome in the latest edition of the minor league baseball podcast. Going to be a feisty one. It's probably going to be our most feisty. Probably our feistiest? most contentious. Feistiest? Feistiest, most feisty. I don't. It's it's not a word we use together, Tyler, that much. No, it's not. We're we're generally so agreeable, but uh, this week, no, not agreeable. Not at all. Episode number ninety nine of the show before the show podcast from milb.com. Hi everybody, I'm Tyler Mon, Sam Dykstra, uh, my co-host for this uh, for this old podcast. Uh, just just picking fights this week, so <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna duke it out today, verbally, of course. Hopefully, we're both standing by the end of it. <laughs> Or we'll have to meet like somewhere in between, like Cincinnati, and just duke it out there. All fights have to go down in Temecula, as we, uh, as, as Twitter told us uh, yes. a few years ago. Um, so, with that, we welcome you into the 99th edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, which you can find on iTunes, on the Stitcher app, on Android devices, on iOS devices, on Zunes, whatever you got which we had confirmed to us a long time ago. Uh, find us there. You can also find us at MILB.com slash podcast. And wherever you find us, you can give us a rating and a review and a subscription, and we would very much appreciate that. Tell us what you think of the show. Get in touch. Podcast at MILB.com. Sam's on Twitter. He's at Sam Dykes or MILB. I am on Twitter at Tyler Mon. And without further ado, we will dive into this week's episode. Jim Callis of MLB.com, MLBpipeline.com will join us here coming up in just a little bit. MLB Pipeline's top 100 prospects released for the 2017 season. We do not yet have all 30 organizations released because. The top 10 clubs, we know which clubs those are, but we don't know their order as of yet. So we're waiting on those teams for their top 30s. Uh, but we are down to crunch time as it stands for uh, prospect rankings in the 2017 minor league season, which is coming up real soon. Uh, and that, by the way, uh, brings us to uh, a conversation that affects a top prospect and leads off for strike one this week. In the Minnesota Twins organization, where news came down today that Alex Kirilov will miss the entire 2017 season. The outfielder and the number three overall prospect in that Minnesota organization will undergo Tommy John surgery on his left elbow, the team announced Wednesday. We're recording this on Wednesday. MLB.com's Rhett Bollinger added a nine-month rehab process will follow the procedure, and after that, 
he could begin baseball activity in five months after that then really becomes the road back to actually getting on the field but this is a big blow twins very high obviously on Alex Kirloff he was the 15th overall selection last year this is a bummer Sam yeah yeah we we had him on the podcast um we did. I think it was episode 91 uh beginning of this year uh you know he was definitely a guy who sounded like he was excited for for the season to come for a full season to come for that first uh spring training I remember we talked to him he was already down in Florida um you know assuming we he was rehabbing that elbow injury uh you know he he went through a procedure hoping he could just kind of rehab it the twins hoped he could just rehab it um and then you know the spring hit and it was obvious some symptoms kind of sprung up again and it was obvious that he needed tommy john um so that's disappointing twins kind of have a you know history of this in terms of position player prospects going through this miguel sano uh before the 2014 season actually it was three days to the day they announced Sano's Tommy John surgery, Sano needed Tommy John surgery on March 1st, 2014. They announced Kirilov needs it on March 1st, 2017. Nothing really to that except it's just a fun fact. But, um, you know, that knocked out Sano for the 2014 season. Uh, he didn't return to the field until April 9th, 2015 with Double A Chattanooga. Um, ended up making the, the Twins later that year. Obviously, that's a different track here when we're talking about Kirilov. He's only played at rookie level Elizabethan so far. Um, so nobody's predicting that he's going to be making the majors 2018. But, uh, yeah, you know, for a guy who was, you know, this was going to be a big developmental year for him. How can he handle, you know, 140-game slate? How can he handle Class A pitching? Um, you know, how can he handle the heat, you know, no matter where he's going, you know, playing all, all season long, uh, both in terms of the actual weather and in terms of, you know, facing a 95, 96 mile an hour fastball from guys at Class A, uh, and now that's that's thrown back here. I mean, he's still only 19. Uh, not that you ever wish Tommy John to come to somebody, but you know, for an outfield prospect, it happened early in his career. It's not going to set him back horribly. Uh, you know, we'll be talking about him in the same breath next year. But um, you know, for for young players who need as much development time as you can get to just completely knock out a year like this is, is a little bit heartbreaking, especially, you know, for the player, for the organization and for us, you know, kind of following along and hoping, you know, he could be a guy that kind of could build himself into a solid outfielder uh, for the twins and, and, you know, what is kind of a rebuild mode for them. So yeah, it might be a little while before we hear from him, but um We'll just have to see how this kind of shakes out once he's back, what it means for his arm, whether it means he, he's allowed to play right field going forward or if it, it's going to limit him to left. Uh, all, all those questions, but we're not going to have answers for uh, probably a year's time. Last year with E-Town in the Appalachian League, uh, Alex Kirilov was the Appy League Player of the Year, batted 306, 341, 454 with seven homers, a triple, nine doubles, and 33 RBIs in 55 games. Again, the 15th overall pick in last June's draft. And just a big bummer. You don't want to see it happen to anybody. You especially don't want to see it happen to a young guy who's right at the outset of his career. Um, and so that, obviously, uh, the breaking news today is what leads off three strikes. Strike two is the big debate. Stories out this week on MILB.com, 30 through 1, the top organizations in baseball in terms of their pitching talent. We did 30 through 21 on Monday, 
We did 20 through 11 on Tuesday. And today, Sam's and my friendship hangs in the balance as we debate the best organization in baseball for pitching town. Backstory. So, as we got ready for these, Josh Jackson last week did position players. I, this week, handled pitchers. Next week, Kelsey Hennigan will handle under 21 prospects. Sam did rankings for all of these organizations. We had internal discussions and debates. Sam sent out a comprehensive list of where guys were ranked across various services and all those types of things. Very phenomenal, fantastic work, as always, done by Sam Dykstra. Um, Sam and I discussed some movement in, you know, the lower third and... I don't think actually we had any movement in 20 through 11. I think we were pretty much in lockstep on that. But in 10 through 1, I decided to throw Sam the biggest possible curveball. Well, let's be let's be clear here. <laughs> on 10 through 3, we were again in lockstep. Yeah, we were. No, that's true. Yeah, like it wasn't complete disagreement all no, the way. That's, no, it, that's true. 10 through 3, we're good. We're good. It's good Two synergy. It's podcasting synergy, Sam. Yeah. I don't know what else you want from me. No, I'm um, very pleased. <laughs> but last night finally finish writing editing putting the story into our, our cms getting it posted to the to the site and i sent sam an, e sam an email and i said i got a big one for you and as i said to sam it's basically the same debate as cookie dough versus cookies and cream ice cream they're both a hundred on a scale of one to a hundred you can't go wrong with either but the conversation is between the Atlanta Braves and the Chicago White Sox. And I, last night, upon doing my final strokes of research and final thought, I put the White Sox over the Braves. I stand by it. Sam responded with an email that would have made you think that I put, like, the Oakland Raiders That's at number true. one. That's like, not true. the Las Vegas Golden Knights. I just picked out, like, the University of Maine Black Bears, and I was like, hey, man, best, best pitching staff in baseball. Like... It, it just lobbing out curse words and insulting my dog and just Sam Dykstra, a disgusting <laughs> human being. Um, and, uh, and Sam switched it back, which I told him obviously that he, that he could, because again, I think they're, they're both, you can make a phenomenal argument for either. Uh, so the Atlanta Braves check in as our top organization in overall pitching talent in their minor league system. The Chicago White Sox rank second, and we'll follow just with the, the rest of three through 10. And then we'll have our discussion. Pittsburgh Pirates are at number three. The St. Louis Cardinals, even despite the Alex Reyes injury, are at number four. By the way, some news today, which by tomorrow will be late, but Luke Weaver was lifted from his appearance for the Cardinals today. Reportedly back spasms, he's going to be fine. Houston Astros, number five. Tampa Bay Rays, number six. Colorado Rockies, number seven. Milwaukee Brewers, number eight. San Diego Padres, number nine. And the Los Angeles Dodgers, number 10 important thing to note about the Padres they were ranked 28th in these rankings last year and they're number nine now which is insane the only other team to make a move at least close to that was the Chicago White Sox they jumped 17 spots uh but they come in at number two now Sam yes they do explain yourself I want you to explain yourself first you let okay give the uh I will Give the version my, of the White Sox. My Talk, email, my, and I, I kind of explained it this way to Sam in my email. I, when, when looking at the White Sox system, to me, the level of upper echelon talent in that system and upper echelon talent that is closest to the major leagues is better than the level of talent in the Brave system, despite the Braves having greater depth. 
I think the impact potential of the guys at the upper end of the White Sox system is greater than the group that the Braves have that may be deeper, but I just don't think is of the same, quite the same caliber. Again, it's like ranking number one and number 1.1. But the other thing that really stands out to me about it is the, the guys in the White Sox system have been able to prove at higher levels that they have the ability to be successful. Yes, there is some shine off of this system in terms of the fact that Lucas Giolito struggled last season. Reynaldo Lopez is likely headed to the bullpen, although I don't think that's a knock. The way you see pitching staffs managed these days, people talk about Reynaldo Lopez and say, he's probably going to be a reliever. Yeah, look at what relievers are doing now. This is the age of relievers in baseball. I don't think that's a negative thing for him. Michael Kopech, yes, he threw 110 miles an hour with an, a light ball from a crow hop, whatever. But the dude has an 80-grade fastball. He's going to be in double-A this year. And Carson Fulmer, who is one of the top talents, hasn't yet proven it, but one of the top talents to come into the game from the college level, uh, hasn't proven it, I should say, consistently at the upper minors or in the major leagues. Carson Fulmer is the fifth-ranked prospect in that organization. He's only been in professional baseball for really a season and a half, and he made the big leagues last year. I just think those guys, not to mention that the White Sox exiting last season, their number seven, number eight, and number 10 prospects are all pitchers as well. Spencer Adams, Zach Birdie, and Dane Dunning. I just think that's like four guys that are legit number one to number two caliber guys. Now, Lopez, you probably move out of that argument because he may end up well in the bullpen. But those guys, to me, man, that I don't know how you can argue against that. The thing that that sticks out most is that they've done it in the upper minors. The Braves guys, there's a ton of depth there, but there's a lot of depth in class a Rome's rotation last year. And that's not to knock the Rome Braves. It's not to say that that's not talent or it's not guys that should be valued, but the guys that are higher on the level in that organization don't move the needle for me quite as much. And ultimately that's what a minor league system is about is who is going to contribute at the major league level and make the biggest impact. So that was why I went with the white Sox. Sam went with the Braves. Sam is the arbiter of all things. So the Braves end up winning in this one because we don't live in a democracy, as I said on Twitter, but uh, your, your thoughts, Sam. Well, I just, I I have a your thoughts on how you're wrong, I should say. Oh, well, of course. Yeah. I mean, I think that every morning. How am I wrong today? So it's it's this thing today, I guess. But um, we're too we're too socially conscious. No, it's just it's so much like I agree with you that they this, the White Sox certainly have the, maybe the higher ceiling guys. I mean, Giolito we've been high on for a while. Kopech we've been high on since, you know, we found out what his velocity truly could be. Uh Carson Fulmer, as you mentioned, a high pick. Uh, Reynaldo Lopez was kind of a breakout guy last year, but Giolito really struggled in the majors. I know there, uh, you know, as, as high as MLB pipeline ranked him, you know, at number 11, I know a lot of people have him significantly below that. Reynaldo Lopez struggled in the majors last year. Carson Fulmer struggled in the majors. Yes. These are guys who have reached that. And we, we know what they can do there compared to, you know, the Braves. It's easier to say they haven't struggled in the majors yet because they haven't been there yet. But there's just as good and a high ceiling as these guys are, you know, to call them ones and twos. Yes, it's it's possible. You know, if everything clicks, if Lucas Giolito finds his control again, right? It's all in velocity again. In these discussions, that can happen. The Braves. I I'm just looking at the list right down. I like wrote down names that I'm legitimately excited for in their system. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, eleven pitching prospects that I think have a legitimate chance to make the major leagues. And most of these guys are starters. 
there are only five spots in a rotation. Like you, you do not have this. T- and let me just list them off before we. Uh, they're, they're Colby Allard, Max Fried, Ian Anderson, Luis Gohara, who they got this this offseason from from the Mariners. Uh, not a top 100 prospect yet in MLB pipeline. I know other uh, sites do have him as a top 100 prospect. Sean Newcomb, Mike Soraka, Tuki Toussaint, Patrick Weigel, Joey Wentz. Uh, and, and it, you kind of keep going on, and it's just it's like it. it Kyle Muller, I forgot. You know, Lucas Sims had had a really strong uh, couple seasons back. AJ Minter could be a guy who could pitch in the bullpen this year uh, for the Braves and do that incredibly well. I mean, it. I just go down this system. You get into the twenties before you find a pitcher who you're like, I don't really like this guy's potential. Um, and it's just that level of depth that I have not seen, you know, in my, this is going to be my sixth season. I haven't seen this level of depth in terms of pitching prospects or position player prospects in any system since I've started covering this. I mean, maybe the Astros a couple of years ago were as close as you kind of got and that has worked out pretty well for them. Uh, but for the Braves, they just had, they've decided, you know what, we're just going to get as many pitching prospects as we're going to, as we can. And, you the best five arms in about three years are going to be the ones who win out. And maybe we have some relievers. Maybe we have some guys we trade off to turn into other pieces, whatever. You know, you're right. These guys have not proven themselves in the way that, you know, the guys in the White Sox system or Dansby Swanson or Ozzy Albies have at the upper levels yet. Uh, I think Sean Newcomb is kind of in that group, among that group, the only guy who's pitched at double A or higher. And we know of his control issues. Um, but just the way they're kind of play, playing the pitching lottery in terms of just depth of arms that could all very easily foreseeably make the major leagues is just too impressive for me to ignore. And then you, just to compare that to the White Sox system, I think after Zach Birdie, you know, then you have Alec Hansen, who I think is, is a promising arm. Uh, Dane Dunning has some questions, Spencer Adams, and then we're really trailing off. And those are that's just the top 10 in the system. You have to get into the 20s when you're talking about the Braves before you have kind of similar question marks. I just can't ignore that depth. I mean, as much as I like making these things, you know, what is the impact talent? um, I think the Braves have both that and the depth that kind of pushes them over. I think the the ultimate debate here comes down to the the concept of having just a glut a massive collection of really promising arms but at a lower level because a lot of dudes fall off in high a even more dudes fall off in double a or having a smaller group of arms that have proven they can be successful the upper minors and have shown flashes of being successful in the major leagues yeah i mean we did see some struggles in as i i sat in on on things in courtrooms before so i think i questioned the witness first then sam did now i get my rebuttal and then i think that's it um <laughs> but, but i think just uh the yeah lucas giolito had some struggles last year Ronaldo lopez struggled when he made the major leagues um you know carson fulmer is a guy who we're we're not really sure what his profile is going to be when he gets there but they're 22, 23, and 23 years old. All those guys together. Michael Kopech is 20 and is going to be in double A this year, likely. So I think, you know, there's obviously still dudes are going to get rocked when they get to the big leagues in a lot of cases. Lucas Giolito, there are some question marks. Why was the velocity down last year? What happened with his stuff? Some of the command issues that he saw. Pitched at a bunch of different levels. He had that one random appearance for Hagerstown uh, and then saw 14 games in the Eastern League, seven games in the International League. He was in the big 
big leagues for six games, so he bounced around all over the place. The Nationals fell off of him very quickly for some reason last year. Reynaldo Lopez seemed like he was kind of the second prospect in that deal, um, more along the lines of a guy that I think the Nationals felt like, well, if this can make this deal possible, we'll include him. The fact that they had to include Dane Dunning in that deal, that deal is still just mind-boggling to me, the amount of talent that the Nationals conceivably gave up for Adam Eaton, but that's a discussion for another time. Um, so I think the the ultimate discussion here is the White Sox have a group of guys that are closer and I think have a higher ceiling than the guys in the Braves system, but the Braves have more guys who are potential arms in a major league rotation down the road. So, you know, as Sam said, what the Braves have right now, there are very few things you can compare that to on the position player side or the pitcher side. I think maybe the Cubs with position players a couple years ago, like Sam said, the Astros, that's about as close as you can get. Um, we've been comparing the the building of that system to what the Cubs did with the way you just like 2015, 2014, you look down the Cubs top 30 and it was just like dudes who would have been top five prospects on the position player side in any other system were like in the back 20s with the Cubs. Cubs organization and that's what the Braves are doing right now with arms but I think that's what it comes down to ultimately is guys at a higher level smaller group guys at a lower level bigger group and there's no yeah. wrong way to go for the right. record I go no, cookies right. and cream I mean that's the, the thing is it, it, I, I think we're you know bits aside uh you know I think we're, we are in agreement that both are very desirable I mean, as, as much as you want to make it seem like I made it sound like you you chose the New Hampshire Fisher Cats, <laughs> or not New Hampshire Fisher Cats, uh, the Maine Black Bears, you know, for the number one rotation in the minors, I, I you know I I really like the White Sox, you know I I like the the potential they have to hit on these guys is immense. I think Rick Hahn, uh, at least you know for our jobs was the winner of the offseason in terms of rebuilding what was a really down system. Um, but I just can't ignore that back end. You know, if we, you mentioned at the top, you know, the White Sox were one of the highest climbers in terms of pitching prospects this year. And the reason, you know, they were down so much last year is because they pretty much only had Carson Fulmer. You know, you add Giolito, uh, you add Kopech, you add Lopez, and you add Zach Birdie, and it does get significantly better. And that's to the White Sox credit. I'm not trying to take anything away, but the that back half that is, still there is not as shiny as I think a, a top pitching system should be. See, this is so contradictory because in the email, Sam said, quote, I hate the White Sox and I'm trying to take it all away from them, unquote. And, and I want to direct this quote, your words. All the White Sox fans whose favorite team <laughs> I'm denouncing can hear me. Well, email in. By the way, I just want to say Kelsey Hannigan's on my side. So, uh, you know, that's why I call her our best pal on the podcast. She told me. Mm-hmm. So there. I know. I, I told her before this, hash this gave out. me a look, but that's okay. <laughs> so if you're a White Sox fan and if you're a Braves fan, a lot of things would be really pumped about, and that's what it comes down to. But let's talk about some of these three through ten. The Pittsburgh Pirates uh, and the Tampa Bay Rays, I kind of drew a parallel between those two because their top arms we may not even see in the minor leagues for a while. Uh, Jose De Leon, you would think, is going to contribute pretty quickly in Tampa Bay. They are the number six-ranked organization on this list. Tyler Glasnow is the same way in Pittsburgh. Um, but what else stood out to you among this group? Yeah, just the, just how strong I think the Pirates still kind of are. Um, you know, a lot of us probably thought Tyler Glasnow was going to be a graduated prospect at this point. Uh, he's not, you know, because of some uh, rough goings of his own in the majors. But Mitch Keller, you know, a guy we talked to on the podcast in the past, had such a great season. Uh, I wouldn't sleep on Nick Kingham, who is you know, coming back from Tommy John surgery in 2015. 
Um, I think he's a guy who could very easily slip into that mode of being a three or four starter. Um, and when you're already building around Garrett Cole and Jamison Tyone and Tyler Glass now and you know all these other guys they have in that that system already in terms of rotation, they don't need Kingham to be anything more than a four. Uh, but he he could even be a three if he if he shows health this year. Uh, so that that system remains really exciting for me, which kind of I guess surprised me uh, when I first sat down to to kind of send you what my initial thoughts were on this is how high I was on the Pirates still. Uh, and, and just to kind of move down the list to number four, the Cardinals. Yes, Alex Reyes is out for the year. Yes, that's a major bummer. He's still immensely talented. We know Tommy John surgery is easier to come back from than it used to be. Uh, it's not necessarily a career record like it used to be. We still have to, you know, take it with caution. We don't know what he's going to be like when he comes back. Uh, we don't know if the command's going to come back. You know, he already had some control issues. So are, are those going to be even worse? But you go down that list. Luke Weaver has just been dominant in the minors. I really want to see him take that to the major leagues. Uh, he's talked about adding a couple pitchers to his repertoire. We'll have to keep tabs on that this spring. Uh, Sandy Alcantara is a guy who has a 70 grade fastball. Dakota Hudson and Junior Fernandez have really high velocity. They were given 65 grades on the 2080 to scale for uh, their fastballs. So a lot of just really potentially high ceiling guys in that system. They're not there yet uh, beyond Reyes and I think Weaver. Uh, but that system, again, is, is pretty deep as Cardinals you know, pitching systems have been in the past. So you can check that story out at MILB.com. That's the top 10, 11 through 20 came out on Tuesday and 21 through 30 came out on Monday. So you can go find your team um, or you can also not find your team if you're like an Angels or Mariners fan or Diamondbacks fan. Sorry. You can you could probably skip it. Um, strike three this week, Sam. Uh, we will uh, we'll move away from yelling at each other, which I think is the first time that this has happened on this podcast. Um, but strike three this week. The spring has opened. Games being played all across uh, the majors and minors. Minor league teams against minor league teams. That hasn't started yet, but we've seen prospects in games. Um, who's standing out to you so far in the spring? Um, yeah, so... The the one thing that I remember, I think it was the first spring training thing I actually wrote out for the site in terms of an actual game action thing was Aaron John, Aaron Judge's bomb uh, or just, you know, incredibly deep home run. I think it was 449 feet. First home uh, run for anybody in spring training in 2017. Yeah, it just it went way out to left center. Uh, like I said, 449 feet, which is just an absolute blast. Uh, you know, I don't want to put too much into one home run and I don't want to put too much into one week of games because they're so sporadic. The competition level is always changing in the spring training. Um, you know, don't pay attention too much to this kind of stuff. But for Aaron Judge, who we talked back when we were doing prospect projections, he's a guy fighting for the right field job for the Yankees and what is going to get him there. It's his power. And when he shows it that quickly and that awesomely, it, it it's it's fun to see a, but it's also kind of reaffirming that this is how talented this guy is. Uh, and the other thing we always have to keep tabs on with him is his contact rate. Uh, as of when we're recording this, I think he's only struck out once in nine at bats. It's not nearly a big enough sample size. And again, the competition is all kind of whack right now uh, in terms of non roster guys getting innings and, you know, guys lower on the totem pole on the 40 man roster all that kind of th stuff. But if he hit that monster home run and it struck out five times in, in those nine at bats, then I would be kind of cautious. Uh, 
this start that he's having so far is a little bit more cause for optimism. Uh, it's it's how these things kind of build. It's how you start to win a job. Now he needs to carry it to week two and week three and carry it, you know, through the end of March, and we'll see how that kind of goes. But uh, yeah, that that Homer certainly caught my attention, and, and uh, I'll be keeping even a closer eye on him. Uh, one other note from spring training. We've got a really good story up on the site right now from Alex Kraft is a, uh, a Q and a and a profile of uh, Mariners top prospect, Tyler O'Neill. There were some stories uh, out of the Seattle media this week. Tyler O'Neill, this is a thing I did not know about him. Plays the piano brilliantly, apparently. Um, so you can go check out Alex's story and then you can go track that down as well, because, you know, in light of, of moonlight beating La La Land as it should have, we'll, we'll give a plug to the poor people who play piano who are uh, not pleased this week. <laughs> why not yeah make it happen you, you talented people out there who <laughs> yeah. can play piano all of you people who need a need a lift and also can mash home runs and look like tyler o'neill um one foul ball for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast from milb.com uh craig farrar listener uh emailed us last week and said quote hey guys some ideas on who to cover how about the marlins dylan peters who it's always said is a good player but and then his height is mentioned and he's discounted or nate or for the brewers who despite being an undrafted senior sign has hit his way to AAA, and with the breakthrough of tj rivera might have hope of making the major leagues a couple of really interesting guys sam yeah, what kind of tied them both together? Uh, strangely, I, I don't know if you know they were searching by height or something, but they're both five foot nine. Uh, you know, they brought up Dylan Peters' height, and he, you know, five foot nine is not great for a pitcher. Uh, Nate Orff is a kind of utility infielder; he's played all around and some outfield. So five foot nine, not exactly having the same effect. But uh, yeah, for Dylan Peters, he's a guy he already has Tommy John in the profile. You know, he was taken in the 10th round out of the University of Texas in 2014. Didn't pitch that year. Uh, came back in 2015. So 2016 was really his kind of first full season. Showed some really impressive control. Uh, only 20 walks and 128 and two-thirds innings. Uh, posted a 2.38 ERA. I think he's up to now being the number five prospect in, in that Marlin system. I mean, it's not a great Marlin system, as we've kind of said in the past. Uh it's a little bit better for pitching with Braxton Garrett there and Tyler Kolick and Harleen Garcia. So, you know, Peters kind of slots in there. Uh, would really like to see him kind of carry that forward. I mean, last year he pitched at Class A Advanced Jupiter in the FSL, which is a notoriously good pitcher's league. Uh, posted a 2.46 ERA there. And then at AA Jacksonville, was, it was pretty impressive. You know, 1.99 ERA with a 0.93 whip. Only over four starts. So I, you kind of want to see that kind of carry forward. Doesn't have the strikeout numbers really at any level uh, that you'd want to see out of somebody like that. But given his height, he's probably going to be a guy who's not really overly dominating. Um, so, you know, he, he's one to keep an eye for on, especially if you're a Marlins fan. Uh, how is that going to work out? Is he going to stick at, at starter? Uh, we'll have to kind of see. Uh, but the other five foot nine, Nate Orff, you know, they in the email that brought up, um, you know, maybe he could become a TJ Rivera type guy in terms of, you know, an older prospect. He's 27 now, uh, having a major breakout in the PCL, uh, in the way TJ Rivera did last year, winning the batting title, uh, in the Pacific coast league with Orf. I don't really see it. I mean, even TJ Rivera hit 325 in 2015 before his real big breakout last year, uh, you know, on the way to the Mets last year, Nate Orf hit a hit 288 
with a 749 OPS. Doesn't have much power. You know, only hit two home runs at AAA Colorado Springs. Not a heck of a lot of speed with six steals. He's He could be a really interesting utility piece. Uh, like I said, he's played second base. He's played some third. He's played some short, a little bit of time in the outfield. And the Brewers, you know, with, with the way they're going through their rebuilding process this year, wouldn't surprise me, you know, if, if a need arises uh, that they put him on the 40-man just to kind of see what they have in him. It's really no pressure. I don't foresee a breakout in the way we saw with Rivera uh, for Nate Orff, but, you know, it, he he's a, a depth guy to have in the system. Uh, we'll we'll have to keep an eye on, on him and see what he, he can kind of put together uh, in that, you know, second go through in the PCL. So there you have it. Guys who are 5'9", good dudes. My dad's 5'9". Uh, so that'll wrap up three strikes and a foul ball for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast. And coming up, we're going to talk with a senior writer from MLB.com and MLBpipeline.com, Jim Callis, who will give us his take on the great pitching organization debate of 2017 plus a whole lot more from arizona where jim is currently checking out spring training that's coming up next on episode number 99 of the show before the show we're talking all things top 100 and more with the senior writer for mlb.com and mlbpipeline.com and i cannot believe that we've gone 99 episodes and have not yet had jim callis on but we're really excited to finally have you jim welcome to the show how's things in arizona uh, it's good. It's good. It's like I, I actually had rain on back-to-back days, which I didn't think was possible in Arizona, but uh, <laughs> we had clear skies and clear baseball today, so that was good. All right. Well, we're going to start with a question for you that has brought some debate to the podcast today, uh, and then we're going to get into everything else. But we just finished up our organization rankings, our farm system rankings for pitching groups uh, in every organization. So we went 30 through 1, and at the top, we have in no specific order the Atlanta Braves and the Chicago White Sox. If you had to pick a number one and a number two out of those two systems in terms of the pitching talent in those systems, where are you going? Hmm. Well, I always make Braves fans mad, so I'm going to think through this. I like the Braves pitching depth. Braves fans think I don't respect their farm system enough, which is silly. But the, the one the question I have, the one question I have with the Braves farm system with the pitching is. I like the depth. I like a lot of names, but you know, name me one of their pitching prospects. Just name me one who is a good pitching prospect, who has clean medical history, who throws a lot of strikes and is pitched above a ball. And you can't because there isn't one. I mean, they have a bunch of interesting guys, but um, I, I think I would still take them over the White Sox. Okay. I do think they go a lot deeper. Um, the, the, I mean, the question is. If we could fast forward a year from now and you could tell me which Lucas Giolito we see this year yeah. and whether Ronaldo Lopez is a starter and whether Alec Hansen is for real, I think there's more questions with the White Sox. So even though I just questioned the Braves, uh, you know, they, it was Paul Snyder who worked for the Braves who, when I started doing this stuff 25 years ago, told me, and everybody quotes him all the time, you know, you basically need 20 good pitching prospects to find two good pitchers. So I would take the numbers that the Braves have it's weird. I mean, I don't know what you guys are hearing when you talk to people about Giolito, but it's interesting because you get some people who feel like the Nationals really sold low on him. Yeah. And that they kind of, you know, jumped him up and down last year and in and out of roles, and it wasn't a great way to handle him. And then I talked to other scouts who just don't think he's athletic enough to repeat his delivery on a consistent basis and, and be a starter, which is interesting because nobody ever really said that before last year. So 
Um, I just don't know what to make of him. So I will take the Braves. Who did you guys have as the number one pitching order? So we had the Braves there, um, which that's Sam's vote. I went with the White Sox. Sam and I had a very a very healthy discussion about it, but kind of we were along the same line. Sam, uh, very high on the depth. I kind of had the, the same thought process that the guys who have pitched in Atlanta system have pitched in such low levels that I went with the White Sox because their guys were a little bit older. But I guess that brings us to uh, kind of an overarching point, which is right now it sort of seems like it's those two organizations then it's kind of everybody else in terms of pitching talent, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, because we're doing our own rankings, but we don't, we don't. I, I like how you guys do that because it's an interesting to look at it. We don't separate them out, so I guess I haven't thought about it uh, quite in those terms. But yeah, I, I would think that. I mean, and, you know, I, I, when, when I when I put the White Sox second, I didn't even mention Michael Kopech, who might be the best pitching prospect. I mean, who'd you guys have three and four on that list? We went with, uh, at number three, we had the Pirates, um, which obviously we might not see Glass now for long. And then we had the Cardinals at four, even despite Reyes' injury, um, you know, with Weaver today leaving a game. It seems like he's healthy, but that was where we went three, four. Five through ten, we went Astros, Rays, uh, Rockies, Brewers, Padres, Dodgers. Yeah, I mean, that's just fair. And, and so, yeah, anyway, in that context, yeah, I think you are talking Braves and White Sox, and, and then it's a step down to the rest of them. All right, well, Jim, the, the question I kind of wanted to ask for you is, you know, as you're kind of putting together these top 30s, as you're putting together the, the top 100, um, you know, a couple of years ago we had what was kind of the year of the prospects. Last year, uh, guys didn't quite, you know, put it together at the major league level in the same way. Um, how do you think this kind of group compares, you know, a, as the top 100 stands now, how does the this group of top 100 prospects compare to some of the other years that, you know, you've been – putting together some of these lists? I think it's pretty solid. I mean, I think the thing that, that's striking to me is looking at our list. I'm trying to do a quick count in my head here. I mean, if you look at our top 25 prospects in baseball, we've got six pitchers. And then right behind them, we've got another five. So it's actually six of our top 30 prospects are pitchers, which I don't ever remember it being that way before. And you can even nitpick the six pitchers we have because, you know, Glasnow still needs to throw strikes. And we just talked about Giolito. Alex Reyes is out for the year after Tommy John surgery. Michael Kopech, you know, look, has looked great, but we haven't seen him over a full season. Francis Martez, or some guys think he's a reliever. Anderson Espinosa is so young. So it's really, and I don't think it's any kind of trend that's going to continue going forward. But that's the thing that jumps out to me the most is, is just a lack of pitchers at the top of, of the prospect list. And I, I think if you look at other prospect lists, not just ours, I think you kind of see similar things. Um, you know, I think part of that's a tribute to that. There's an, you know, it seems like every year we're talking about the next crop of shortstops, and there's still a ton of really good shortstops this year with you know, Glaber Torres and Dansby Swanson and the Med Rosario and J.J. Crawford. I mean, J.P. Crawford. I mean, Ozzy obviously could play shortstop if you wanted him to. Brendan Rodgers. So I, I guess, you know, th th that's what sticks out for me. I mean, I think the crop's good, but I, I think we got spoiled a couple of years ago. We we're just not going to see that that, you know, a couple of years ago might have been the best rookie crop of all time. My my kind of follow-up on that then is, is it something just about these particular set of pitchers or is it something about the way we're viewing pitchers and, and the way they, you know, maybe break down a little more or it's easier to nitpick their problems? I mean, it, is there something about the game that's influencing that or is it something just about this particular crop? I think it's just more cyclical. I mean, I know, you know, I mean, back in the day, you know, baseball prospectus, you know, very famously you know, here to, you know, there's no such thing as pitching prospect. And 
or try to beat you over the head with that point sometimes. And yes, I mean, pitchers are risky. I mean, I know when we're putting our list together and I, and I know from having worked at baseball America, like if you had two guys who were close and one was a hitter and one was a pitcher, you might take the hitter because there's a little bit more certainty, but we definitely didn't go into this saying pitchers are riskier. Let's sandbag them a little bit. I just, you know, it's just kind of a, I think a cyclical coincidence right now, but, uh, you know, yeah, we have a bunch of pitchers after that, you know, on the rest of the list, but just at the very top, it seems like, you know, most of the best prospects in baseball are now a position player. Yeah. You know, I mean, you could flip that the other way and say, it's not necessarily a shortage of pitching or a, a, a knock on how the pitchers are going. Maybe we're just, you know, seeing another wave of outstanding position players. Jim, you mentioned that really talented group of shortstops. And yeah, like you said, we were spoiled a few years ago uh, with it seemed like not only the best uh, shortstop class ever, but maybe the best rookie class ever. But this year, that seems like it's the top uh, position group, arguably. And Glaber Torres, Dansby Swanson, Ahmed Rosario, J.P. Crawford, uh, Brendan Rogers, Willie Adamas, who we just had on the show last week. Um, those guys seem like a group that would be at home in any other top prospect type of year, but among, especially those top four, uh, Torres, Swanson, Rosario, and Crawford, who do you think ultimately has the highest ceiling of those guys to make it to the major league, stick at shortstop and be a guy for a team to build around? Um, I think they all do, but I mean, I, I would go with Torres. I mean, I don't think he's as good defensively as say a man Rosario, but I think he's a legit shortstop who, who plays the position. You just saw defense. I don't think he's going anywhere, and I just think he's got the highest offensive ceiling of those guys. His, his hands are just so quick, and they work so well at the plate and in the field. I mean, I think that's a guy who, you know, theoretically could, you know, you know, maybe challenge for some batting championships and hit 24 summers a year and play you a real solid shortstop. So, I, so I would go with him. And when we're talking about kind of farm systems, and I know you guys are putting together your top 30s, you're getting into the, the top 10 now. Uh, but when you look at how some of these systems are kind of constituted in terms of, you know, upper talent, lower talent, what have you, um, what is one you're kind of fingering for being one that's going to have like the most helium this year as most guys who you think could have kind of a breakout season if you had to pick one of the, one system like that? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, uh, well, you know what? It might be the Padres. Uh, you know, we were joking. You could almost do a top 30 list of, uh, Potter's prospects who weren't in the organization at the start of 2016 because they've acquired so many guys through trades to the draft for international. So I, I think it might really be the Padres. It would be the system that jumped out for me. I mean, you are going to lose a couple guys off the list. You know, Margot and Renfro are going to graduate to the big leagues, barring something uh, surprising. But I, I think Cal Quantrill could take a big leap forward. I think Anderson Espinosa, who we mentioned earlier, could be the best pitching prospect in baseball by the end of the year. I think Adrian Morhone it could be, you know, take a big step forward and really jump up. We, you know, we'll see on the position guys, but uh, you know, especially if we look two, three years in the future when some of their their international guys have just signed, develop. I think that's that's a system that it's already strong, but it has a lot of upward mobility as well. Jim, last season, um, the the 2016 draft brought in a lot of really interesting talent. I think especially on the the college player side in the in the top ten because Nick Senzel goes second. A really good debut season for him in the red system. Corey Ray's been hampered a little bit so far in the spring, but he goes to the Brewers at number five. AJ Puck last year, we're still unsure as to what AJ Puck we're going to see because his final season at Florida wasn't necessarily uh, the, the best thing that you want to see for a guy who was projected at one time to be a one one. But there's 
some really interesting names kind of throughout the first round. Uh, you know, Kyle Lewis goes out, has a great season, blows out his knee. Uh, Matt Tice, who was uh, the Angels and pitching, picking college catchers, has kind of baffled people. But of what you saw from the guys who were taken out of the, the college ranks last year, who do you think has the ability to make one of those big jumps this year where all of a sudden we're talking about them and maybe not necessarily a Chris Bryant type of way, but maybe a Kyle Schwarber type of way of somebody that can make an impact because they're advanced coming out of school? Well, I think if you're talking advanced, it's probably Senzel. And, you know, maybe, you know, I think he's already pretty highly regarded, but I do think he maybe has a little bit more power than, than fans might realize. Yeah, everybody talks about, I mean, to me, Sinzel's a guy who won a future batting championship. So you think about the hit tool first. But, you know, he's got, I think with that hitting ability, he also can drive the ball. He's got some power there as well. Um, I think he plays pretty good third base. Uh, you know, I think it's a situation where, and I'm not saying he's going to be this type of player, but I was thinking of another college third baseman uh, besides Brian, but Alex Gordon, you know, came into pro ball, you know, highly decorated uh, college guy. Uh, my draft memory Fails me a little bit, but I want to say Alex Gordon was the number two pick in the draft, too. And Alex Gordon was the minor league player of the year in his first year. And I just think Nick Senzel is such a gifted hitter that it wouldn't shock me at all if he came in and just had, you know, went out and hit, I don't know, 330 with 20 homers in the minors this year and, and, and really jumped up the charts even more. And while we're talking about the 2016 draft, you know, news broke today about Alex Kirilov needing Tommy John surgery. Uh, you guys have him at number 98. Obviously, you ranked him there before, you know, the, the surgery was announced. Um, but when you hear something like that, you know, we, we went through this with Reyes a little bit. Uh, Kirilov is a, a position player prospect, so it, it's not as big a, an effect. But when you hear like something like that, how does that kind of shift your projections for, for a player like Kirilov? Yeah, yes, it's funny because we, we actually talked about that. You know, do we want to do anything with the top 100 with Kirilov getting hurt? And, and you know, my, my quick thought was was no, because, I don't think it really affects his career long term. I mean, it probably delays him getting to the big leagues by year because he loses the year's worth at bats or, you know, half a year or whatever. But, like, at least in his case, I mean, we always feel good about guys coming out of Tommy John surgery, although you don't always get your stuff back. I mean, John Lamb didn't get all his stuff back, for instance. But, you know, with Reyes, while we feel like he's going to come back, I mean, we did lower Reyes, uh, you know, who was originally number six on our top 100 after the news of his Tommy John surgery broke. Uh, we lowered him on our list. Uh, I, I don't have him in front of me. I think we put him about 15 or 16, somewhere around there. Um, but with Karloff, I mean, at least you hate to see it happen to the guy and you hate to see him lose the at-bat, but it really shouldn't affect him going forward. Jim Cowles, the senior writer for MLB.com and MLBpipeline.com. MLB Pipeline rolling out the top 10 farm systems in baseball this week. Uh, the Tampa Bay Rays at number 10, Cincinnati Reds at number 9, Colorado Rockies are number 8, Pittsburgh Pirates are number 7. By the time you hear this on Thursday, 6, 5, and 4 will have been released, and the top three systems are coming out on Friday. And uh, Jim, just for uh, a final point, you're down in Arizona right now. You were out at the Brewers Complex today. Um, just kind of give people an idea of what it's like for you at this time of year, and I know I got a chance to meet in the the Arizona Fall League back in October and so you're down there at that time of year you're down there obviously for a lot of spring training what are you doing this time of year you know getting a chance to check out prospects and evaluate guys what is March like for you yeah it's pretty fun I mean it's it's I, I will say I'm here a little bit early the WBC kind of throws everybody's schedule off and you know we, we contribute to MLB Network's 30 teams and 30 days coverage so we kind of go to whatever camp they're at but the problem with being here this early is none of the minor leaguers are really doing a whole lot I mean some of the guys report early um, you know, I really haven't seen guys do much other than in major league game action. I, I did see Corey Ray take batting practice today before I interviewed him. So that's been kind of the highlight, but it's, 
it's it's fun. I mean, like I'm looking forward. I'll go to Florida later in the month when minor league games are kind of in full swing. And and to me, there's just nothing better than than being on a backfield with two or three games going at once, and you can kind of walk from diamond to diamond and then pick who you want to look at. That, that, that's the highlight for me is seeing a bunch of those guys in action. And if you are headed down to Arizona or Florida, you can do that as well. Most complexes provide you pretty easy access to the backfields. You can wander around, check out prospects, get a chance to talk to guys sometime. Uh, and you can talk to guys like Jim and guys like me and Sam. And we're both headed down to, to Florida and Arizona here in the, in the coming weeks. And it's a fun time of year. Obviously, the Hope Springs Eternal cliche is a cliche for a reason because everybody can be excited in March. And uh, Jim Callis, you can find on Twitter. He is at Jim Callis MLB. And you can check out everything uh, for the top 100 and all of the 30 major league organizations at MLBpipeline.com. And Jim, this is so much fun. I promise you it will not be another 99 episodes before we have you back. All you had to do was ask. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's always fun talking prospects. I uh, love talking prospects. Love being here in Arizona and heading out to Florida for spring training. Great time of year. Thanks, Jim. We appreciate it. And, uh, and yeah, we'll do it again real soon. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Well, we transition from prospect talk to the business of baseball, and we bring in Benjamin Hill for our weekly conversation with Ben. And we start things off on a somber note. Uh, we received word yesterday through the AAA Norfolk Tides that longtime Tides general manager and executive vice president Dave Rosenfield passed away after six decades in baseball, uh, started working in the minor leagues in 1956. 60-plus years he worked in minor league baseball. Really fascinating guy. I mean, one of the real titans of the game, Ben. A big loss for the Norfolk community and the baseball community at large in the minor leagues. Yeah, Dave uh, Rosenfield is a sort of a minor league lifer from a totally different era who, as you said, was in minor league baseball for 60 years. He started off in Bakersfield in the 50s where uh, you know he would occasionally coach and throw batting practice and just be involved in any way possible. He's, of course, synonymous with uh, the Norfolk Tides, Tidewater Tides before that. Uh, he came on with them when they were um, in the Carolina League and then transitioned with them uh, to the International League. Uh, he passed away at 87 years old. Uh, through the years, I got a chance to write about him in various capacities. Um, he co-authored a – well, he wrote a book. It was an as-told-to book uh, with uh, his uh, – Albuquerque Isotopes general manager John Traub, um, and I wrote about that book. It's called Baseball, One Hell of a Life, and uh, you know he really did have one hell of a life. He uh, created the International League schedule, and before that, the Carolina League schedule for over for almost 50 years, and uh, did it all by hand and was doing it well, well into his 80s. Um, doing it all by hand and, uh, you know, grumbling about all the teams giving him problems like, what do you want me to do? There's 14 of you. Um, he was a man uh, known for speaking his mind and uh, being a kind of salty guy. Uh, we were just laughing about stories about the Dave Rosenfield we've heard through the years. Um, and some are detailed in his book, uh, you know, a man of voracious appetites who uh, admitted to eating raw hamburger meat on crackers as his favorite snack, uh, eating just hot dogs right out of the package and uh, weighing almost 400 pounds at one point. He got in better shape as the years went on, but he um, you know, was not shy about saying, I don't know how I lived this long uh, given the kind of life I've had. And uh, so everyone in minor league baseball who's worked in minor league baseball for any amount of time knows the guy and uh, a big loss 
but uh, I do have um, the story about how he made the schedule. I met him on the road in Norfolk in 2015. He had just turned 86, and I interviewed him about the schedule-making process and about his career in baseball. And even then, he was doing color commentary on the air every day, um, coordinating travel for the team. Uh, so he stayed involved for, for as long as he could. And in your conversations with him, I mean, what really stood out even then when you were, were talking about him just about schedule? I mean, when you when you sit down with guys like that who have been around the game so long, they, they usually love telling stories. They have, have them by the dozens. Um, but what kind of stood out to you in those discussions, even even at that late stage? Well, a man in, who works in baseball, you know, baseball is a uh, industry which uh, there are a lot of storytellers. And as you know, anyone who works in baseball likes to tell stories about working in baseball. And uh, his story about how he began doing the schedules in 1962, his first year with the Tides when they were in the Carolina League, um, he apparently spoke up at a league meeting and said uh, when the president, Bill Jessup, a distinguished Southern gentleman asked if anyone had problems with the proposed schedule. And Dave Rosenfield apparently, and he's told the story probably hundreds of times, he apparently raised his hand and said, I think a monkey could do it better. And uh, the president said, well, new boy, this job is all yours. You have two weeks. Congratulations. Thanks for volunteering. <laughs> yeah, so that impertinent remark led to him doing it from 1962 in the Carolina League, then in 69 the uh, team transitioned to the International League, and he did it all the way through, I believe, the 2015 season, um, you know, doing it by hand, you know, considering it to be a giant puzzle, laying papers, you know, giant sheets of paper out all over his living room and uh, piecing it together by uh, what he told me was brute force. And, um, you know, I've written about schedule making before, and uh, we could talk about that on another show, but it's a really intricate process. There's been computer programs developed by uh, – uh, researchers and students at Johns Hopkins University that are now doing the job for a lot of leagues. But um, at, at its root, the history of that job is just a league president or someone who works for a team really hammering it together and trying to take in every team's needs and wants and considerations and balancing out of holidays and weekend dates and dates that you can't be home and can be home and not wanting to play uh, the same team on the road and then at home in two consecutive series. And you can just go on and on and on. I don't know how schedules ever get done, but they've always gotten done. And I'm glad it's not me. One of the neatest anecdotes that anybody in minor league baseball will ever be able to stake to their career and put on their resume and is now on the resume at the late Dave Rosenfield. Back on November 8th, 1990, a Simpsons episode in that show's second season aired named Dancing Homer. And uh, in that episode, Homer Simpson hired as the mascot, I believe first of the Springfield Isotopes, and then he gets called up to the Capital City Capitals and quote unquote, the big leagues. And while there, uh, you know, it just doesn't quite cut it. Like so many guys who get called up, can't make the grade at the big league level, but he was fired in that episode by the owner of the Capital City Capitals named Dave Rosenfield because that episode was co-written by Ken Levine and David Isaacs, and Ken was a former Norfolk Tides broadcaster, and so this threat of minor league baseball that episode the the springfield isotopes their connection with the albuquerque isotopes there's always been kind of a an odd tie between the miners and the simpsons but that is a very tangible thing for dave rosenfield there's hardly anything that anybody in baseball could put on a resume that's cooler than that yeah and he was a little baffled by it when i asked him about it um you know by the time the simpsons debuted he was uh probably about 60 years old already so i think he kind of wasn't too interested in that phenomenon, but he told me that any time that episode aired, people would give him a call. And uh, and that book I mentioned, that uh, his memoir, he that book was ad told to as told to John Traub, 
the uh, GM of the Albuquerque Isotopes, who were named after a Simpsons episode. So everything comes full circle, and that's a really nerdy fact. Pretty crazy, but uh, our thoughts obviously are with the, the Norfolk Tides and the long-standing relationship that the Hampton Roads community had with Dave Rosenfield and with his family as well, um, and uh, an amazing life in baseball. And you can read all more about that and Ben's past stories about uh, Mr. Rosenfield on the site as well. Um, we'll move on to some more baseball-related stuff. Yesterday was a crazy day as far as promotions go. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday, March 1st, but it seemed like February 28th, everybody wanted to release all of their good promo ideas at the same time. So there's a lot of them to get to, but the one I want to spotlight, the Biloxi Shuckers on July 14th are going to be giving out a bobblehead of one of our favorites, friend of the podcast, Brett Phillips, uh, who has gained a lot of notoriety for three things in his life. One, being a really good baseball player. Two, he's had multiple on-field run-ins with possums. And three, he has arguably the weirdest laugh in the history of human civilization. And the Shuckers Wait, Tyler, are... Sorry, Tyler, you told me you can do an impersonation of that laugh? Well, I could because it just <laughs> it really just has to be silent. Like, that's all you have to do. And then eventually you have to go... <laughs> like, that's it. It's just... Thank you for my new ringtone. Punctuated <laughs> silence with that sound of like a like an ogre groaning like that's kind of brett phillips left smile possible while you're doing right it. exactly with a smile and one eye closed if you haven't it's seen it an audio visual experience <laughs> you have to go look up brett phillips laugh if you haven't seen it but somehow this bobblehead is going to feature a possum brett phillips and a sound box that produces that laugh which is amazing and that was one of like a million promos that was announced yesterday yeah that was uh maybe the best one that was announced but um it's not it's going to get a lot more attention in the weeks to come because there's no visual with it right now. And uh, as you know, on the internet uh, and things going viral, you need the visual. But that is what I believe must be the first bobblehead ever created in honor of uh, a Milby Blooper of the Year award, which was the uh, Brett Phillips wrangling the possum on the warning track. And that's what precipitated this whole giveaway. Which he was, did last year in Biloxi and also did back in 2014 when he was in Quad Cities. That's happened twice in Brett Phillips' career somehow. Yeah, but, you know, when, when stuff like that happens, you could say coincidence or you could say, like, is that person the putting themselves in situations exactly. in which they are more likely to wrangle a possum? The I think he's attracted out for Brett Phillips. I, I think he's attracted to possums. I mean, I don't mean, like, attracted to possums, but um, <laughs> I, I think, like, you know, when most people would see a possum, they'd be like, that's not my situation. I feel like he gravitates towards that situation and, and all the power to him. He's... Uh, you know, made a, uh, I don't want to say career out of it because that's not his career, but he's uh, gained a reputation for that. And uh, credit to Biloxi, who, um, you know, they played their first season two years ago, didn't have a promo schedule because they started the season late while they're waiting for their ballpark to open. And, uh, you know, haven't been a team yet that's really uh, done many promos that have really broken out. And uh, this one will certainly break out because you have a possum and a. Uh, a laugh on a, on a voice box part of the bobblehead. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Well, let's go through some of the other things that happened yesterday. Cause it was, I mean, that was just like one of so many. I mean, there was another bobblehead with Trevor Bauer and drones, which was one of the you know running jokes of the end of the 2016 season. El, El Paso announced it's going to be changing its name on a particular day. Uh, yeah. Well, let's take a trip through yesterday in, yeah, in mill promo history. Um, I went to the I went to the dentist, which really isn't part of Mill promo history. <laughs> but I got back just in Coming time. To the bobblehead near you. Yeah, that's a strip. <laughs> exactly. Um, but when I got back just in time. 
for the El Paso Chihuahuas uh, big announcement, and that is that on Wednesdays they are going they are going to have Diablos days, and they're going to wear 1987 era El Paso throwback uniforms every single Wednesday. And those are really cool uniforms, Tyler. I would imagine you're a fan. They have a uh, sort of uh, West Texas style Padres sort of uh, vibe to them. I would say um, old school Padres kind of look. I'm not good at explaining things. It's like you, you know, I think I'm a writer or something like that. <laughs> um, but they're going to be wearing these every single Wednesday, and uh, got a lot of attention for that. And uh, real cool to see this trend of the um, you know, weekly um, promotion throwback jersey. So that happened. Then we had Fresno, who you always know are going to bring it with the promos. Um, you know, they have a bobblehead slate of uh, Lincecum and Posey you know, in their post-World Series championship hug, the Buster Hugs um, bobblehead. They have Madison Bumgarner wrestling a grizzly bear, and that's a bobble arm. They have Tony Kemp driving a in a Fresno Tacos uniform driving a taco truck. Which he was pumped about, by the way. He tweeted that he, he thought that was really cool, so... Yeah, and you see Fresno, you know, still um, capitalizing on their previous era as being a Giants affiliate with the Lincecum and Posey Buster Hugs bobblehead, the um, Madison Bumgarner bobblehead, but then referencing uh, the Astros affiliation with the Tony Kemp taco truck uh, bobblehead. And then the Grizzlies also announced um, that they're wearing um, Sgt. Pepper's 50th anniversary theme night jerseys on June 1st. And uh, in April on 420, they are going to be wearing crisscross jerseys, uh, referencing the uh, early 90s rap phenomenon crisscross, who of course wore their clothes backwards. Mac Daddy and Daddy Mac, and so those uniforms are going to be backwards with the number on the front and the primary logo on the back. So Grizzlies, you know, doing their thing per usual. I could go on and on about the Grizzlies, but I won't for right now. Then uh, later we had the Richmond Flying Squirrels getting in on the Oscar action. Did you know that Warren Beatty was born in Richmond? Huh. No. Did not. I did not either. That's new. And so the Richmond Flying Squirrels, their mascot, Nutsy, I guess looks like an Oscar statue if you uh, make him into an Oscar statue. So in honor of the Oscar night gaffe involving Warren Beatty, the team is giving away nutsy Oscar statues and, of course, inviting Warren Beatty to the ballpark to hand them out. And I think there's, a, of course, a very, very strong chance that Warren Beatty will be there. I put it at 90% chance. I mean, why wouldn't he show up at the ballpark? Then we had the Biloxi Shuckers with Brett Phillips, as we mentioned. Uh, the Round Rock Express did that last year for their um, What Could Have Been Night. They became the Round Rock Fire Ants. And this year's What Could Have Been Night, they are the Round Rock Jackalopes. Uh, and I believe that's a mythical creature. That the logo jackalope. is good, too. It's, yeah, it's no, real that, good. It looks really legit. I believe that's a Brandios' creation, and a jackalope is a jackrabbit slash antelope. It is a mythical animal, by the way. It is, it is, but I believe... And uh, then we had the Reno Aces talking, uh, again, no visual, but the drone bobblehead for uh, Trevor Bauer. So that all happened in the span of a couple hours. I could barely keep up with it, but I did. It's my job, and it's all on my Twitter feed, and I'll be blogging about some of that stuff later as well. So we count on from one Benjamin Hill. Uh, ben, one other note we've discussed multiple times. Technically, no brand new ballparks in 2017, although Hartford will be opening a ballpark that was supposed to open last year, whatever. Um, but there is some spring training ballpark news, a new stadium in West Palm Beach, Florida, renovations in Lakeland and Tampa. Give us some updates on what's going on there. Well, I'm working on a batting around column that will um, have appeared by the time this podcast uh, goes to the airwaves. 
and it's focusing entirely on uh, new things to look out for in spring training slash the Florida State League. So, uh, yes, no brand new minor league stadiums, but the ballpark of the Palm Beaches is opened in West Palm Beach. That's going to have uh, the Washington Nationals and Houston Astros. They're going to share that facility and um, go into detail on some of that and the sort of repercussions it had in the FSL which are kind of too complicated to explain. Not really, but if I get into it, I'll just confuse myself. But I wrote it all down, and it'll make sense there. Um, Tampa Yankees, Steinbrenner Field, uh, huge renovations there. Uh, not a new ballpark, but very, very uh, extensive renovations, a lot more group areas, and trying to get in line with the whole uh, you know, more uh, modern-day minor league baseball. Asp- you know, the stadium opened in 96. It's not like it's some ancient ballpark, but more group areas, more room to move. Um, more amenities for the modern-day fan who might also be on his phone. And uh, then we got Detroit Tigers slash Lakeland Flying Tigers, uh, Joker Marchant, Marchant Stadium. Um, they've been there since 1966. But as you remember last year, the Lakeland Flying Tigers actually played at Henley Field, a nearby stadium, because there was so much work being done uh, to Joker Marchant, Marchant. I don't even – I've been there, and I barely <laughs> can say it. I always want to be like French, Joker Marchant Stadium. But anyway, they did so much renovations there, so that's almost a new facility in terms of the amount of uh, work that that got done. The uh, bleachers down the third baseline, which which had no shade or – no longer, and there's a lot more shade, air conditioning, fan amenities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, St. Lucie, uh, home of the Mets and the St. Lucie Mets in the Florida State League, uh, they just changed their name to uh, First Data Field, and they are in the process of procuring enough money to do what Tampa and Lakeland have done with huge overhauls to the facility. And even McKechnie Field, which was built in 1923 um, and has been extensively renovated in recent years, they changed their name uh, to Lacombe Park. And I don't think that's French. It's actually an acronym for uh, Lake Erie College of Medicine. I think it's a specific medicine. But uh, Bill McKechnie was a Hall of Fame manager who uh, was born in the Pittsburgh area and uh, lived in Bradenton, and he he passed away in Bradenton. Bradenton so uh, the ballpark had been named after him for the last 50 years. So maybe not the most popular uh, move to change it to a corporate name, but they still do have the uh, Bill McKechnie home dugout. So osteopathic medicine, in case you were so inclined to Google it, I already did it for you. Lake Erie College osteopathic medicine. Thank you. I knew there it wasn't go. just medicine, um, but the, as naming rights go, it makes sense. They have campuses in the greater Pittsburgh area as well as a campus in Bradenton. Uh, that ballpark is in Bradenton and uh, the spring training home of the Pirates. So it does make sense uh, as a partnership for sure. So all that and more is up at the site, MILB.com, and also on the blog, bensbiz.mlblogs.com. And as more promo stuff gets rolled out for the 2017 season, you can follow Ben on Twitter and see all of that stuff there. Seems like the window is closed for uh, for Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway-related promos, but obviously we're going to have a runner-up night again in Frisco. That was announced shortly after the Oscars. Um, so, you know... Anything that happens that is an event of any kind, minor league baseball teams will capitalize on it. Benjamin Hill will be there to bring you all the news. Thanks, Ben. Talk to you next week. Wait a second. Um, we what? have our listeners on this uh, podcast, and Sam Dykstra promised one of our loyal, loyal listeners, is his name? Uh, it's Scott, Scott Heathcote. Scott Heathcote. Uh, that he would do a portion of this podcast. Oh, he, that's like, correct. From Futurama. That's and right. And also, if, if you're a listener of this podcast and you love Sam Dykstra, as we all do, uh, send in your Twitter request to the podcast at Ben's Biz, at Sam we'll do Dykstra. do it all the time. 
at MILB, uh, at Tyler Mon and uh, request new voices for him to do, because little known fact about Sam is he's a master impressionist, and today is, he's going to grace us true. Let's with, hear it, uh, Sam. Hermes. It's, no, it's, 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 none of it's true, but, um, I mean, after you'll hear this, it's going to be, nobody's going to send in a request except for, like, what are you doing? I, I unsubscribe from the podcast, but it, it was a request we got, so I, I want to make sure. For those who don't know, Futurama, one of the best, uh, cartoons of my generation uh, made by some of the creators of The Simpsons. Uh, it was on Comedy Central for a while, or no, it was on Fox for a while, then got canceled, then was on Comedy Central for a while, then got canceled. All right, man, you're, st you're stalling. Let's hear it. <laughs> anyway, Hermes was one of the crew. Uh, he was Jamaican, so this is a Jamaican accent. And one thing Hermes always did is if he had an exclamation to make, he would say, sweet Animal name from place name, and it would have to rhyme. So, with that in mind, a lot of tap dancing around this impression that I haven't yeah, heard yet. Uh, it's, it's yeah, I wish I could tap dance more. <laughs> uh, sweet beluga from Chattanooga, professor. There we go. That was it. All right. That that was it. All right. That can be your new ringtone, your new whatever. But now it's over. Combine that with my Brett Phillips laugh impression. This is uh, we'll, we'll we'll create a whole line of ringtones. Okay, so before I get out of here, can you say that one more time, Sam? While Tyler, no. while Tyler, you laugh like Brett Phillips. <laughs> ready? ready? Okay, ready. Three, go. two, one, go. Sweet beluga from Chattanooga. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're gonna get fired from this podcast. Talk to you next week, Ben. Bye, guys. Wrapping up episode number 99 of the Show Before the Show podcast, Jim Callis is on Twitter at Jim Callis MLB, and as we mentioned, Benjamin Hill at Ben's Biz. And uh, one thing I like about the, the Jim Callis conversation is that he uh, he goes with the Braves. Okay, I'm fine with it. I can admit it. Um, but he said the exact same things that we said, which makes me feel way smarter than I am. <laughs> like our same lines of logic were yeah. also his lines of logic. I'm good right. Right. So, you know, we're 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 not trying to give you like an echo. We're you know, we just wanted to see what his proce thought process would be on that. And it's it's similar to ours, which which is good. Yeah. Makes us feel good when when actual smart makes me feel good when actual smart people understand my point of view. Sam is one of the actual smart people. So, um, you know, when he emailed me and said, I'm going to stab you the next time I see you because you picked the White Sox. I was like, whoa, Sam, a little over the top. But, uh, you know, Jim Cowell sees sees our points and I'm happy with that. Yeah, it, it, uh, the next live podcast we we have might be very short. <laughs> it's just going to be Sam beating me up in the studio. It'll All right, that'll do it for episode one seventeen on the. <laughs> Oh man, at least you let me get all the way through the episode. That'll be good. Um, <laughs> hey, but the exciting thing. Next week, when you hear a podcast from MILB.com, one of us will be at spring training. That's Sam. And the following week, we will both be at spring training. Joined there in Arizona, I will be by Josh Jackson, our fellow writer for MILB.com. So the next couple of weeks are going to be a ton of fun for us. Sam, you're going down to Florida on Tuesday? Yes, I'm, I'm going to be flying into Tampa on Tuesday. I'll be in Yankees camp on Wednesday. Um, so we're probably going to record this next podcast before I'm in Yankees camp, but I'm going to try to bring everybody an interview from Yankees camp, uh, you know, live, in person, probably in the clubhouse. Uh, with one of their 40-man 40, 40 guys or 
uh, non-roster invites. Uh, definitely a prospect. Uh, so that's something to look forward to if you're a Yankees fan. I know we just had Justice Sheffield, but that's kind of the, the way that the schedule is going to work out um, in terms of getting this in a normal time for everybody. So look forward to that next week, uh, especially if you're a Yankees fan. And then the week after that, we have our spring training spectacular, uh, which is nor the way we've done this in the past is us just kind of introducing interviews that we've done with players all over Florida and Arizona. So that that will be especially fun. Uh, and I think that that'll be episode 101, won't it? Yeah, it will. You have to say it because it was your idea, and I'm going to let you take all the credit for it because it was brilliant. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's spring training 101. It's an education. Yeah. But I love baseball. It. Yeah. So I love it. It's fantastic. Um, by the way, I just got a, a Twitter message uh, from a follower that I think would apply to all of uh, our listeners. And the question is, quote, do teams hold workouts that fans can go check out? And the answer, as we noted with Jim Callis, is yes. If you're headed down to Florida, if you're headed down to Arizona, teams generally start getting their minor league guys into the mix at 8, 9 in the morning thereabouts. Although I know I think it's the Tampa Bay Rays this year are going to start everything a little bit later um, because during the season, guys aren't up and working out at 8, 9 in the morning. Why would you do it during the offseason? Um, but that is the case at most complexes. I don't know how it is in Florida, Sam, but in most places in Arizona, you can pretty much just rock up to the backfields when things are going on there. If you have to leave, uh, there are certain designated open times Sometimes for certain teams, um, ballpark slash facility staff will be there to usher you out if you're not supposed to be in a place at a certain time. But for the most part, you can get access to backfields, watch games, watch prospects work out. And that's like half the fun of going to spring training now. Yeah, a lot of them have kind of especially marked areas which you are allowed to be in. You, it'll be very clear, you know, if if you are just a fan where you're allowed to be, where you're not allowed to be. Uh, it's very accessible, very easy to get to. A lot of them are right next to the park. I know the Yankees and Pirates, when I went to Florida last year, they're kind of in separate locations. Uh, Yankees are down the street, actually right past Raymond James Stadium where the Buccaneers play in Tampa. Uh, the, the Pirates have their minor leaguers play in Pirate City in Bradenton, which is not next to McKechnie Field. Um, but you can probably get to either one very easily. I know the Pirates are especially fan-accessible. Uh, all all sorts of people passing out lineups and rosters and making it very easy for you to know who is who. Uh, just don't be that one person. Last year when I went, uh, there, Jake Maurer, who is the brother of Joe Maurer, is a manager in the Minnesota Twins organization. Uh, somebody assumed that Joe was on the backfield. Just like, <laughs> you know, like, Joe, Joe Maurer, what are you doing back here? Don't be that guy. Be be. No. Kind of educated. If you're listening to this podcast, we hope you're educated. Uh, but know who you're looking for when you go back there, and uh, it'll make the time so much more fun for both you and the players. That was a, a good note, though, to mention um, in Phoenix, in the Phoenix area. The Giants are really the only team that have a backfield complex that's not with the Major League Stadium. Scottsdale Stadium is beautiful. It's one of the older facilities now in the in the Cactus League, but um, it's I think it's only about a five-minute drive from Scottsdale Stadium to the Giants complex uh, where the player development fields are. Uh, so if you're a Giants fan going down, you haven't been down before, keep an eye out for that. And that will do it for this week's edition of the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. Again, rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, on the Stitcher app, and wherever else you find us. And you can find every episode 1 through 99 at MILB.com slash podcast. And until next week, have a safe flight, buddy. I'll talk to you from Florida.
Yeah, yeah, we'll do. It'll it'll be a, a much sunnier, uh, tanner, not tanner, redder. Uh, <laughs> Sam, talk to you next week. That sounds fun, and we'll talk to you all next week. Enjoy uh, our last edition before finally we get to watch actual live baseball. We'll talk to you then. Yeah.